Hello and welcome to the Chess Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Dominique Pepper. On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to this month's Chess Podcast. My name is Dominique Pepper, and I'm the moderator of the Chess Podcast section. Now, thank you all for joining us today for what will be a really fascinating discussion on fluid response evaluation in sepsis, hypotension, and shock. Today, we're very fortunate to have Drs. Douglas and Satterwhite as our guests. Um, we'll be discussing Dr. Douglas's randomized controlled trial, uh, the FRESH trial, which stands for Fluid Response Evaluation in Sepsis, Hypertension, and Shock, and the accompanying editorial uh, by Dr. Satterwhite. So, Dr. Douglas, could you please introduce yourself? Good morning, everybody. I'm Ivan Douglas. I'm a public critical care specialist in Denver, Colorado. Uh, my practice is in medical intensive care at Denver Health Medical Center, and I spent time at the University of Colorado in Anschutz campus uh, conducting research with colleagues in the areas of sepsis and ARDS. I've been in Denver for coming on 18 years, originally from South Africa, with time spent as well in London, Chicago, New York, and so have uh, really had the privilege of benefiting from collaborations and colleagues uh, internationally. And it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, uh, Dr. Douglas. Uh, Dr. Satterwhite? Hi, good morning to everybody. My name is Lewis Satterwhite. I'm an associate professor um, at University of Kansas, also practice in pulmonary and critical care medicine, um, and serve as the section chief for inpatient and critical care medicine. I've been at the University of Kansas about 10 years, uh, previously in Atlanta, Georgia, prior to that. It's an absolute pleasure to have both of you on the podcast. So let's dive into this really fascinating randomized trial. Um, Dr. Satterwhite, maybe you could set the stage for us. Why is fluid response evaluation in sepsis, hypertension, and shock so important? Thanks for that question. I think it's um, uh, vitally important uh, for many reasons. Uh, the first is that uh, I am fully convinced that our management decisions for uh, fluid across the spectrum of illnesses, but especially uh, in sepsis and septic shock, has implications for morbidity or mortality, as well as this is something that is incredibly common and frequent in clinical practice, a decision point and uh, fork in the road, if you will, several times uh, in any given day. With the frequency and the importance, it is really impressive uh, in terms of the paucity of data that we have to inform our decisions. Um, combine all of that together with, I think there is significant variability in practice. Uh, there are guidelines uh, that are clear and um, very straightforward to follow in terms of initial volume resuscitation for patients presenting with septic shock, but they are admittedly based on weak evidence, and they really put guidance in the initial evaluation, but this is something that can be ongoing for uh, patients with this disease process that can stretch out for hours and days. Uh, with recurrent decisions that need to be made. Thank you for that introduction. Um, and Dr. Douglas, do you want to add anything to why uh, fluid responsiveness is so important in sepsis hypertension? 
Yes, and I think that uh, by way of further recommendation and commendation, it was the work of, works of Dr. Latham Satterwhite uh, at KU that really was a primary motivator for the conduct of the clinical trial we're going to discuss this morning. And so um, I think that just that fundamental observation that our one-size-fits-all approach to post-primary resuscitation of patients with sepsis, hypertension, and shock um, has really demonstrated in numerous studies fairly conclusively that uh, um, there really is a paucity of, of strong data to suggest that we are getting it right. And there's two contexts to that. The one is that there is tremendous variability in the way usual care resuscitation is delivered um, across North America specifically, but globally, for patients presenting with non-fluid response of hypertension shock. Um, the second is the recognition, and this really was a dawning of understanding for me when we spent time um, uh, writing the uh, drafting the sepsis guidelines, the slide sepsis campaign guidelines, that um, many of the recommendations for fluid resuscitation were based on very low quality evidence, um, and that we repeatedly were making recommendations for the conduct of randomized control trials. And um, it has been that uh, now almost decades-long uh, motivation for me to really try to actuate and implement strategies to test prospectively a more rational, personalized approaches to resuscitation. And so I'll put in context that the study we're going to talk about today is uh, one emanation of that. And the second is the uh, ongoing uh, prevention and early treatment of lung injury, the PETL network, that's a our NIH-sponsored uh, multi-center uh, ARDS and sepsis network, uh, with which we're conducting the CLOVIS study, which is a somewhat different strategy, perhaps we'll talk about later in the day, uh, to understand a more rational approach to fluid resuscitation from this group of uh, those highly vulnerable and high-risk patients. Well, that's a really great overview, and I definitely applaud you and your team for uh, conducting this RCT, which is long overdue. So maybe you could tell us, Dr. Douglas, how you went about performing your RCT and how it differs from previous studies. Yes, so thank you. I think that the, uh, the key uh, approach here was to appreciate that um, we did not want to relitigate the primary value of, of determining uh, whether a routine administration of uh, initial fluid was of value, the 30 mils per kilo question. It is an ongoing challenge, but the purpose, just to frame today's discussion, was not to relitigate that or challenge it. What we are really primarily interested in is in patients who have persistent fluid non-responsive hypertension shock. Um, how should we then rationally craft an approach based on physiologically informed and personalized understandings of responsiveness, um, a, a sequencing strategy for fluid and press administration in the subsequent 72 hours? So it's really the crucial first three days of sepsis hypertension shock. And um, our practice for a good while has been the recognition that static hemodynamic measures like central venous pressure, pulmonary artery occlusion pressure, wedge pressure that's referred to, were literally no better than a flip of a coin when it came to guiding <clears throat> specific responsiveness to subsequent fluid challenge. And so that 
concept of fluid responsiveness, uh, a state of the circulation, which uh, is indicative that um, that the circulation may be hemodynamically responsive to volume challenge in the face of persistent hypoperfusion, really key issue, uh, was really the key driver of observation. Now, measuring fluid responsiveness and the comments in the editorial, I think, are even more eloquently framed than I asked my colleague, Dr. Satterwhite, <clears throat> excuse me, to uh, review that in a second, um, really is this notion that uh, fluid responsiveness is a physiologic state, not a mandate to administer fluid, um, was determined uh, to be an approach that we could leverage. And while there are a large number of technologies and clinical approaches that, that can uh, determine uh, the state of circulation, many of them, for example, echocardiography, IVC uh, estimates, are highly uh, uh, dependent on uh, expert uh, operators to make those assessments. We also know that a large number of patients who come in with uh, early septic shock are not instrumented. They don't have arterial lines. They may not have pulmonary catheters, perhaps in 2020. Um, and so even if we could measure flow and stroke volume directly, the likelihood that this would be applicable in a large number of patients would be low. And so what we did was uh, seek a collaboration, and this was with uh, Cheetah, now the Baxter Corporation, to look at a non-invasive technology called bioreactants using surface lead electrodes that uh, relatively accurately can estimate stroke volume through thorax. Uh, as blood flows using a form of the Doppler shift mechanism. And so this technology has been studied in perioperative uh, situations. The technology is sufficiently sensitive such that changes in preload can be estimated by changes in stroke volume. And so performing what's called a passive leg raise maneuver or a bolus challenge uh, can induce in fluid responsive patients changes in stroke volume, uh, often more than 10% of baseline, uh, if the patient is fluid responsive. And the, that magic number of a 10% increase in the dependent variable stroke volume was considered to be a good cutoff for indication of fluid responsiveness in these septic shock patients. With that in mind, we therefore determined, based on the excellent work of Heath, work of Heath Latham and Dr. Satterwhite, who had conducted a pre-post analysis of this specific intervention at their site, that we would want to validate this in a prospective fashion. And so at uh, around 10 sites in globally, uh, Europe, North America, we randomized patients in a two-to-one fashion who presented very early on, most, mostly in the emergency room, with uh, fluid non-responsive hypertension in the face of infection and uh, evidence that they had the impending shock or established shock. And those patients were either randomized in the uh, two-arm to a, a protocol-directed resuscitation strategy that, uh, in addition to regular hemodynamics, uh, required regular monitoring of uh, stroke volume responsiveness to passive leg raising. And uh, the protocol uh, was very structured so that uh, if the patient was fluid responsive, there was a guidance for a 500 mil crystalloid bolus, at least as an option to be considered. And if the patient was in shock but was no longer fluid responsive, the resuscitation guideline was to prioritize vasoconstricted depressors with many options for, for opting out of the protocol in the interest of safety. So uh, clearly if there's evidence of tissue hyperperfusion or arrhythmia, 
press uh, app titration was not recommended, but fluid bolus was an option and vice versa. In the control arm, we um, obviously this was going to be very difficult to blind. And so what we randomized patients to was a usual care unstructured uh, uh, sepsis resuscitation um, using best evidence according to the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. So at each of our sites, there had to be an established uh, sepsis resuscitation pathway. And uh, we left it up to the care team to implement usual care resuscitation according to best practice as it prevailed in that institution at that time. And so that study was conducted over the course of uh, just over a year and a half um, and randomized approximately 80 patients into the intervention arm, 40 into the control arm. And the uh, study was primarily powered with the outcome variable, the primary outcome variable of fluid difference at 72 hours, which was a process measure, uh, with secondary outcomes being organ failure and then, obviously, uh, survival to hospital discharge, ICU length of stay, and hospital length of stay. Um, because it was powered to the primary outcome variable, those secondary analyses uh, uh, we, an- we anticipated would be exploratory. So that's how the study was performed. And the reason it was particularly different from other studies uh, was that it leveraged a physiologically uh, rationalized uh, approach to the therapeutic intervention that did something different from one size fits all, but specifically targeted personalized physiologic resuscitation. And I think that in terms of the increment that we were testing, it was that idea. That's a really great overview. So I'm going to turn to Dr. Satterwhite uh, just to add some additional comments about the study methodology before we dive into the results. Uh, Dr. Satterwhite? It's very difficult to add to that wonderful answer from Dr. Douglas. It was a great overview of the state of the field and how they identified a a significant need in the literature about how how to approach this common question. Um, I really appreciated uh, some of the emphasis points that Dr. Douglas put on that he was, or their group, uh, was assessing that question for time points for patients after um, initial resuscitation. Um, I think one of the points that really came out when reviewing the report from their, their collection and their article uh, is that they were able to uh, enroll the patients that they were able to enroll, but I think it's interesting anytime we start to answer a clinical question, we understand the state of the current field and the number of patients that were not able to be in- included in the trial because of just how much fluid they had received even prior to randomization, um, but took this question about how to approach patients with persistent hypotension and to be able to come up with some compelling answers uh, with uh, really our best gold standard doing something multi-center, multinational in a prospective fashion uh, with, with really compelling results that um, help us to, to say that we can really identify patients that um, need a different approach than more fluid and, and, a, and a way that can help to identify these patients that is uh, reliable across time and across observers and across um, interpretations of results. If I could so just add to that, that. So, if I could just ahead. add to that, you know, yeah, um, I really need to highlight that this study could not have happened had the pre-post retrospective analysis not been done by Dr. Satterwhite, Lathan, and Simpson. And you know, I think as a discipline, 
the the attraction to dive into pivotal uh, studies, be they phase three drug studies or device intervention studies, without sufficient what I would term phase two or preliminary mechanistic data, is overly tempting. And there, there is no doubt that without some strong predicate um, in the literature to suggest that this may have had potential, it's unlikely we would have got the study funded or up, up and running. And um, I think that as a discipline, we would do well to to look at the precedent that was set by the publication of the pre-post uh, retrospective study and, and, and take that into account, um, particularly those of us who spend time reviewing manuscripts and journals, uh, that uh, not every retrospective study, just because it's retrospective or single center, lacks uh, utility and value. And I, I, I just say that as a clinical trialist, they, this is something that I think that uh, we would do well to bear in mind. I appreciate that. And what Dr. Douglas is referring to is a report uh, from our group, uh, who the lead author was uh, Heath Latham, that um, had many of these same questions, but reported um, in a uh, from retrospective single center uh, experience. And it was in many ways hypothesis generating in, in a way that uh, um, that Dr. Douglas and his group did uh, expound from that, and where the power in that lies in a lot of ways is that we we found very similar outcomes and trends, and it really is validating in that sense when, uh, yes, you have to be skeptical, just like Dr. Douglas is saying, of reports that um, are different in nature in terms of the design of the study, but it doesn't make them invalid. It makes them uh, need further uh, look and evidence and uh, corroboration, which is exactly what we have here. Well, that incrementalism, I hope, will continue. And, uh, you know, what the, whatever our contribution has been, I really hope that it will similarly prompt additional consideration. So the primary observations from the study, uh, even though the, con- the actual protocol it's a little, a little uh, complex, and we're fairly straightforward. And I, I do just want to reiterate that what we, that the protocol in those 83 patients who ran a randomized intervention was reasonably directive when it came to the interventions that were required. Let me just say it again: that if the patient with persistent hyperperfusion and hypertension, uh, despite initial resuscitation, and certainly uh, before they had received a total of three liters of fluid. Um, if the patient had evidence of fluid responsiveness, by which I mean the change in stroke volume with a passive leg raise was more than 10%, a bolus of fluid was uh, administered, and if there was still persistent hypertension after uh, yet another passive leg raise, then the patient could be initiated on presses. But if the patient did not have fluid responsiveness, uh, presses were titrated or recommended to be titrated uh, starting with near, near, uh, norepinephrine at uh, 0.05 micrograms per kilo. And there was a 10% increase uh, over each increment. So um, when we um, <clears throat> randomized patients in the study, we had 83 in the intervention arm and 41 in the usual care arm. And these were patients that I think most people from an external validity perspective would uh, recognize as completely as being in their ICUs with uh, hyperperfusion, sepsis, and, and shock. Uh, patients were roughly 62 years of age. <clears throat> because of the size of the study, we had some baseline imbalance in gender. Uh, so um, uh, there were 62% females in the intervention arm 
uh, 31 in the usual care, that when the sensitivity analysis was performed later on, that was not informative or, or a confounder. Um, and they were sick. They had organ failures. The sofa scores were elevated uh, up to three at baseline. The, sorry, the quick sofa scores. Their baseline lactate was uh, approximately four at baseline. And uh, 80% of these patients had bacterial infections at the time of presentation. We uh, were fairly successful in um, screening and enrolling patients uh, very early on in their course, which is crucial to the conduct of this kind of trial. And uh, it's a good opportunity for me to pay absolute uh, appreciation and respect to our outstanding coordinators across our study sites, who honestly, uh, day and night, were up there screening and enrolling patients. Um, we managed to uh, capture people from time of arrival to enrollment, a uh, median of three and a half hours. Um, from arrival to uh, in, uh, the first passive leg raise was around five hours. And very importantly, the amount of fluid administered prior to the first randomization uh, was two and a half liters on average uh, of crystalloid. Now, that's really crucial because if the patients completed their resuscitation, there's rather little to intervene on. Um, and at the same time, I need to reiterate that for the large majority of patients, because their BMI was normal, two and a half liters represents the uh, well well uh, in excess of the 30 mil per kilo crystalloid target. And so I really need to reiterate, this is not a study of is 30 mils per kilo a reasonable priority uh, fluid resuscitation. The primary outcome variable, 72-hour fluid balance, the mean, um, was very significantly different and uh, emulated the findings in the Latham study. Um, in our intervention arm, the 72-hour fluid balance was positive, 0.65 liters, 650 mils. In the usual care arm, the fluid balance was positive, 2,020 mls, difference of 1.37 liters, and P was 0.02. Now, very reasonably, one could ask the so what question. So there was a difference in fluid administered. Surely that uh, is not significant in and of itself. But I think what was striking was the uh, secondary organ failure outcome. There was a reduction by two-thirds in the likelihood that a patient would require renal replacement therapy, 5.1% in the intervention arm, 17.5% in the usual care arm, P.04, and a halving in the probability that a patient could progress to respiratory failure requiring some level of either non-invasive or invasive ventilation, 17.7% in the intervention arm, 34% in the usual care arm. And so in some respects, that seems almost counterintuitive. Why would reducing the fluid balance result in less renal failure? In fact, it's somewhat converse. And we perhaps can discuss in some of the mechanistic ideas that, that emanate from that that we're currently exploring. And then down the line, there were other uh, secondary outcomes for which we lost sufficient power for detection, but there was a uh, difference in isolate length of stay not significant, three days in the PLR group, 6.2 days in the usual care group. And there was um, 20% higher probability of being discharged to home by day 28 in the PLR group, 64% versus in the usual care group, 44%. And that was patients who either remained in hospital or had been discharged to a long-term care facility and were alive. So those uh, were both not significant uh, differences. 
Let me stop at that point, and uh, we can certainly discuss other secondary outcomes and exploratory outcomes uh, if time permits. So, Dr. Douglas, maybe before we get there, how, how would you interpret those findings um, that you yeah. just reported to us? So, because this was prospectively devised and because it was a structured protocol, we, we should conclude a causal association between the reduction in fluid balance at 72 hours. Sorry, Dr. Douglas, we seem to have lost you. Um, are clearly just that. They're associations because they are secondary analyses. But it is very provocative that these findings were entirely consistent with uh, uh, previous studies, not just the Latham study, but several other investigations that we can discuss that suggest that uh, more neutral or sometimes even negative fluid balance resuscitation after um, the initial phase uh, of resuscitation and, uh, and stabilization is a strongly associated reductions in both organ failure and, in fact, mortality. And although I didn't discuss the mortality outcome here, uh, there was a numeric but not statistically significant reduction in mortality, as you might anticipate, um, given the reduction in organ failure. So um, trying to be as conservative in the interpretation as possible, what we, we should infer that this is a far more informed or a patient-sensitive approach to, to resuscitation that uh, has salutary outcomes um, and definitely warrants further consideration uh, in much bigger trials where mortality perhaps is the anchoring primary outcome. I should emphasize that although the fluid balance was more neutral in the PLR group, um, there was a, a range around that because, of course, this was individualized care. And so uh, there certainly were patients in the intervention arm that received quite a bit of fluid, but by 72 hours had already begun the evacuation phase of suspicion, sometimes uh, uh, recognizing that they had uh, responded or hemodynamically stabilized far earlier than the patients in the uh, control arm. Dr. Satterwhite, how did you interpret these findings? So I, any time I've been able to participate in discussion about this topic, I um, take the opportunity to uh, emphasize that in our clinical approach and in the literature, we understandably discuss patients that are fluid responsive, but to take a step back and think about what we mean by that. And in this particular case, and I think most often the case, what we mean is that we have some indication of an augmentation of cardiac output. In this, in this case, it was a measure of a change in stroke volume. But that is uh, really only one part of the process. So if you have a patient that has hypotension and or more importantly, uh, organ um, hypoperfusion or inadequate uh, oxygenation to the end organ, there are several different parts of normal physiology that may be the part that is breaking down. Only one of those is cardiac output or change in the stroke volume. And so to improve that, that primary insult, you need uh, to have uh, something change along multiple spectrums or to identify the, the portion that is breaking down. So ultimately, we will have patients with impaired end-organ perfusion, and they have adequate stroke volume. And so measuring the ability to augment that um, 
is of dubious consequence, but measuring that it does not increase gives you something to act upon. Meaning if you have an end organ hypoperfusion and we assess that infusion of volume will not increase stroke volume, uh, that it follows that that patient is not likely to benefit from further volume. It does not, on the same token, say that just because their stroke volume or cardiac output increases, that volume does improve. So I think we've spent a lot of time thinking about fluid responsiveness, and I take any opportunity to try to flip it on its head to discuss what we really are identifying are patients that will not benefit from more. And it does not mean that when we find evidence of volume responsiveness that all of those patients will benefit or that they all should receive fluid. So, you know, what Dr. Douglas and his colleagues have, have demonstrated here are that for patients, again, that have received significant amounts of fluid as initial resuscitation um, on the average of over two liters, uh, that further evaluation for um, change in stroke volume will identify patients for whom we really need to think about other mechanisms to help into organ perfusion for which um, volume specifically, but probably um, uh, mechanisms for increasing cardiac output or stroke volume are, are not the uh, the answers for those patients. Yeah, I agree with that. Dr. Douglas? Yeah, uh, the, the, my response is simply to uh, emphasize how clearly said that was and agree completely with their interpretation. Gotcha. So there are no perfect studies, and maybe we could just dive into what limitations you identified, uh, Dr. Douglas, um, so that we can understand the context of the study. So... Sure. Do you think we could extend the podcast by about four hours? Because uh, there are a ton of limitations to the study, and uh, I really <laughs> do think it was. Uh, it warrants very, very careful consideration, both in terms of interpretation and generalizability. Look, um, unquestionably, the, uh, the limitations here are the generalizability to the broad population. I do need to emphasize for folks that go back and read the paper that it's really important to look at the um, fresh study flow uh, through, the, um, through the study, that's figure one, and appreciate that we assessed 5,500 patients for the ultimate randomization of you know, just a north of 120 patients. Um, we, we ended up excluding rather few patients once they had been screened. But either patients didn't meet inclusion criteria, and the large number of things were they'd already received a lot of fluid by the time we saw them, or they got better really fast and weren't going to go to the ICU for continued follow-up. So I think we need to be very, very considerate in understanding that this was a group of patients that um, have a very discreet aspect of fluid non-responsive hypertension and shock and be very careful not to overgeneralize the findings. That's the first. The second is true of all non-blinded studies. Um, it's the, 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 there is certainly ascertainment bias. There's going to be a bias related to indication creep and practice change. Uh, the conduct of a study over a year and a half across multiple institutions is vulnerable to other uh, changes in structure and care delivery. And so I think that uh, those are all aspects of care that we are uh, looking at in secondary analysis of both this cohort and others. The next is the recognition that um, 
there were uh, that uh, it's really difficult to generalize beyond the discrete group of medical critical illness that we studied here. Uh, we explicitly excluded patients in the post-surgery uh, state, although other patients who were in the ICU with surgery uh, were, were screened and considered. Uh, and we also excluded patients who had active pulmonary edema or established advanced cardiac disease, in other words, decompensated heart failure. And while I'm, I am still very interested in those cohorts because they represent a particularly vulnerable population, uh, generalization to those groups would be, uh, really need to be considered cautiously. The next limitation really applies to the strategy we use to look for fluid responsiveness. And we had decided to use as minimally invasive a strategy as possible. Uh, but it relies on uh, discrete technology and technique, which is the Baxter uh, Starling Suite technology. But uh, whether the same uh, accuracy, reliability, and reproducibility could be achieved with other techniques for more directly ascertaining stroke volume, uh, specifically point-of-care ultrasound and echocardiography to directly measure uh, end-stroke volume and end-systolic and diastolic volume differences, uh, or, um, trans or transesophageal echocardiography probes or other things. Uh, clearly need further assessment because um, while those techniques have been demonstrated to be comparable to the bioreactant strategy we used in perioperative environments, there, there continue to be some variances between those techniques in patients with severe vasodilatory states like shock and decompensated liver failure. Um, perhaps the last important limitation that needs to be considered is um, this uh, causal association between fluid uh, reduction and the improvement in organ, uh, organ failure outcomes. Um, we're exploring this in a currently proposed R01 study looking at some mechanisms of endothelial dysfunction and microcirculation. But at the end of the day, this may not be a macrocirculatory problem. And so um, other things that fix macrocirculation without necessarily addressing disorders of microcirculatory hypoperfusion may not be as effective at achieving organ failure recovery. And so that clearly uh, is an important limitation as we think about the potential underlying mechanisms here. Thanks for highlighting those. And Dr. Satterwhite, what limitations struck you that needed to be addressed in future studies? Well, I think the whole landscape it remains ripe for further guidance, direction, and evidence. Uh, I think right up front, uh, Dr. Douglas and his colleagues demonstrated that uh, they were trying to answer this uh, management question for patients after initial resuscitation. Uh, there are a litany of uh, obstacles to trying to answer the question about that initial resuscitation, but that still remains um, a open and very important question, as uh, we've alluded to from the surviving sepsis uh, guidelines. The, the guidelines continue to recommend 30 mLs per kg for patients for initial resuscitation, which is a strong recommendation based on limited evidence. And so um, while not a flaw of this particular study, because they very clearly aimed at a patient population that um, was accessible and one that they could 
clearly identify and, like Dr. Douglas said, uh, create some external validity for those applying it to their patients. The idea of what do we do uh, for initial resuscitation uh, remains out there. We've demonstrated in a few different ways that a thoughtful or guided approach to a conservative volume strategy has been associated with positive outcomes, uh, and that very well may be true at time zero as it is at, at uh, other times as well, and, and I think it remains a central question that, that needs answers. Uh, not not exactly extending from the same question that you asked, um, Dr. Pepper, but uh, in expanding upon what Dr. Douglas said about not only the macro circulation but the micro circulation, I wholeheartedly agree that as part of the idea of fluid may change your uh, macro circulatory delivery but not necessarily outcomes. The other aspect that um, any of the technologies that we're applying, whether it's this uh, bioreactance stroke volume technology or point-of-care ultrasound, is that we might identify what changes at the time of a volume challenge, whether that's a passive leg raise or volume uh, infusion. What is another aspect that is hard to determine is even if you help with organ perfusion um, by whatever intervention, is that lasting? Does does the augmentation of perfusion continue for some minutes or hours, which would be required to help patient outcomes, or do we make a transient impact that ultimately can still lead to damage long-term if you have uh, systemic inflammation, capillary leak, and uh, accumulation of that fluid in the um, extracellular space um, you know, beyond the, the few minutes around the time that you make an intervention. Your response, Dr. Douglas. Uh, so I, you know, I think that uh, I think this issue of going upstream, and I mean that both temporally, in other words, right at the very initial uh, contact, and upstream, way before the initial administration of fluid, is is such a compelling question. But at the end of the day, one wonders where the juice from the squeeze will come. Um, by that I mean uh, we uh, we must decide as a discipline whether optimization of the stabilization phase of resuscitation yields a much bigger bang for the back, more juice from the squeeze, as it were, or uh, you know, as I say, and I use that term not in derogatory fashion, litigating the 30 mil per kilo bullet. I don't for a minute disagree that the evidence base for that uh, continues to be uh, slim and worthy of discussion. But in, in large part, it's my strong contention that by optimizing the early resuscitation optimization phase of sepsis hypertension resuscitation, we actually avoid even discussions on the back end of having to, quote, evacuate or de-resuscitate patients. So yeah, this... Um, uh, I think very compelling model, the Manu Bellbrain model uh, that uh, Greg Martin and others have written on, speaks about this rose concept, uh, four phases of resuscitation in sequence. Uh, and the back end of that is this E phase, this evacuation or de-resuscitation phase, which is what I think a lot of us in practice end up having to do when we front-end a ton of fluid into patients. And it's my strong contention that ha even the process of having to get down to that level evacuating a diarrhea patient 
is in itself associated with microcirculatory harms that we haven't calculated yet. And so it's far my preference to focus on this optimization phase uh, in patients that are readily available coming through uh, institutions. And the reason I'm so eager to prioritize that has a lot to do with the dissemination of evidence. Um, having spent a lot of my career focusing on the care of patients with ARDS and feeling terribly frustrated about how hard it is to get people to do inexpensive things like prone position ventilation, even when we have, I would say, modestly good evidence to do that. What I would hate to do is uh, miss an opportunity to enhance outcomes by uh, either lacking the persistence and determination on, on disseminating or translating what we're doing into broad general practices in the next step. How would you respond to that, Dr. Salawad? Wholeheartedly agree. I think when um, you that optimization stage, in many ways, when you look at fluid balance over the course of a of a length of stay, that is where the the vast majority of it is. And when where we as ICU clinicians face oftentimes the same question about the same patient, sometimes you know as many as a dozen times. I'll, uh, Dr. Douglas could correct me. I forget uh, just how many. Evaluations some of those patients in his trial uh, observed, but it was it was many um, observations about now. What about this point in time? What do we do? And what about this point in time? How do we react? Those are uh, probably when you. Uh, it's a good analogy. The the juice for the squeeze. When when you look at the the bulk of fluid, it is in that optimization um, time period. So I, I think there is an appropriate um, uh, concentration there. Yeah, the manuscript speaks more to this, and I'd uh, obviously invite feedback from readers and reviewers. But, you know, in just the first 24 hours, there's 382 unique interventions and observations. 67% of those yielded a positive fluid response, a change more than 10%. But already by the end of 24 hours, a third of patients were not fluid responsive. And then there's another whole discussion, perhaps in a secondary manuscript that we're working on, in people that were never fluid responsive. In other words, they never augmented stroke volume to classic leg rates, but they had septic hyperperfusion. That's a group of people that we've demonstrated almost universally have some evidence uh, of uh, cardiovascular disease. And then there's a subgroup of those that when you do a passive leg rates, instead of the stroke volume augmenting, it actually is a negative stroke volume response. And unsurprisingly, almost every one of those patients on ECHO had uh, cardiovascular disease and the majority had some form of a diastolic dysfunction of their heart. So, Dr. Douglas, I do want to drill a bit uh, deeper on find a lot of number of patients with, with right ventricular dysfunction. Yeah. So, Dr. Douglas, I wanted to drill down a bit on the number of assessments that were performed on the intervention group. Um, as you noted, um, the difference in fluids uh, in the intervention group was, I think, 1.4 liters less over 72 hours. And some people may argue that the biologic plausibility that 1.4 liters of less fluid would affect renal function or um, mechanical ventilation is low. And some would argue that, you know, maybe it's the fact that uh, you're assessing the patients more frequently at the bedside uh, six or seven times, and that's actually what's causing benefit. How would you answer to them? Well, I mean, that's, that's an interesting contention. But again, I think one needs to be very careful about how that 1.4 liter difference is interpreted. In randomized controlled trials, when it's a one-size-fits-all, and I'm actually performing that kind of study right now in the Clover study, um, 
there is, uh, you can make that kind of assertion, right? But let's be clear, when you're tailoring therapy at the individual level, the group aggregate differences um, uh, only partially account for the physiologic variation between patients. And so um, while I am absolutely certain that some of the uh, intrinsic confounding that comes from being a study subject is informative, what I'll remind you is that every patient, whether they're getting the PLR or not, we're getting bedside assessments in at a r- roughly the same approximation. Uh, they may not have been uh, getting a PLR if they were in the control group. But um, I think that's actually a stretch of the analysis. And while I think it's very interesting to look at uh, human human performance factors and um, some of the anthropological uh, aspects of team-based ICU care, and one of my colleagues, Jason Mansuri, is actually uh, working on a K-grant to exactly look at that. I, I think that that underestimates the uh, potential impact of this intervention using the protocol. And I think I really have to emphasize, it's not the device, it's not the protocol, it's the combination of the two that I think drives this. Okay, and then the other question that they may have is regarding the um, difference between the number of patients that were randomized and actually analyzed. And in your RCT, you, you, you said you used a modified intention to treat, and that's because 152 patients were randomized, but only 124 were analyzed, and you note in your flow diagram in figure two that um, 14 patients in the intervention group and seven in the uh, control group didn't receive the allocated care, and that in the control group, seven uh, had the intervention discontinued, and that's about 18% of all the patients that were randomized. So maybe you could comment on that because some people may argue that um, maybe there's a lot of fragility in your study where if you were to actually have all the patients receive the therapy that they should, that the results would change. Yep, I, I think that's a very legitimate critique and obviously one that we've highlighted in the, the uh, limitations discussion section. Um, I, I will tell you that uh, compared to many other sets of studies, uh, that's a reasonably high level of retention in the intervention arms. Um, and it's really important that you look at the reasons that people were not included in the intervention arms. Three were randomized but didn't go to the ICU, so we had no ability to actually monitor them. One or two had immediate surgery, so there was no opportunity. One had DKA, and so was going to get volumes of fluid out of the context of the uh, trial. And the rest either with DNR, made DNR after randomization, or, uh, or there was a device failure, or the protocol wasn't implemented uh, um, despite randomization. And so... I think the fragility issue remains completely true in all modestly sized RCTs, and I think that um, that's exactly why this uh, absolutely requires a large, large RCT validation in order to look at some of that issue of robustness of observation, not just screening. Agree. So um, I'm going to turn towards the end of this podcast, and I'm going to invite Dr. Satterwhite to um, give his interpretation of what the study, how the study advances our understanding, and how it'll influence clinical practice in sepsis management. Uh, Dr. Satterwhite, and then Dr. Douglas. I think very briefly and, and directly for me, it identifies that there are dynamic techniques for patients post initial 
optimization that can identify patients unlikely to benefit from further volume infusions. Um, now, that does come with a caveat at the time you're making that assessment intervention because that can change over time. Um, as Dr. Douglas points out, there are other uh, technologies that uh, have been shown to um, be able to be in concordance with our more invasive techniques of um, cardiac output monitoring and whether that applies to other techniques is, is yet to be determined, but that the principle of identifying patients unlikely to benefit from volume resuscitation um, and excluding those and making other interventions um, is applicable, certainly for the type of patients we, we studied here with this device, but also um, it brings up the question of would other patient populations and other mechanisms of evaluation work in a similar fashion. So, Dr. Pepper, thank you, and Dr. Satterwhite, thank you very much for, uh, you know, reflecting on us. With all humility, it's not, not the place of a, a first author to, or PI to really determine how this uh, is going to be adopted. I think, uh, I think it really uh, warrants very diligent peer consideration review and consideration by the field. Um, I think that the kind of robust analysis that we've had a discussion on today uh, is worthy of further consideration. What my hope would be is that this is uh, uh, an opening of, of, of one of the doors into uh, what I would term personalized or rational, rationally informed uh, clinical decision-making when it comes to uh, sepsis resuscitation in general, not just fluids and presses, but you know, what I'm really hoping is that this will open the door to a much more inform biologically informed approach where individualized care using uh, perhaps much more uh, refined um, biomonitoring devices and biological predictors for outcome and enrichment uh, can really transform this uh, stubbornly difficult field where our mortality rates are still just awfully high. And, and that's really being framed by the mortality around COVID-19, which at the end of the day, in the large majority of patients, is a sepsis disease. Um, and so I think that we, with all humility, would look to our peers and colleagues to determine the validity and reproducibility of our observations. Well, a very big thank you to Drs. Douglas and Satterwhite for a great conversation, and a very big thank you to our CHESS community for joining us. I'm Dominic Pepper, and this is the CHESS Podcast.